I'd like to invite you to uh, get your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16. You can remain standing if you, uh, if you haven't already sat down. I was just going to try and catch you. Just as a favor to you. Um, as a community, we've been studying the book of John. And so we have reached John chapter 16. And uh, I'm going to start reading actually from the last two verses of 15. Shouldn't be too hard to, to, to rewind if you're there. Okay, so John chapter 15 and verse 20, 26. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. You also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning all of this I've told you so that you will not fall away. They'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you'll remember that I warned you about them. I didn't tell you this from the beginning because I've been with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Rather... You're filled with grief because I have said these things. I'm telling you the truth, that it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he'll prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Amen. I'm very excited to share some words of encouragement to you today about uh, the Holy Spirit. And full disclosure, um, you might remember this last summer, we spent several weeks studying various aspects of the Holy Spirit or turning our attention to Him. Um, and as some of us were trying to design what we, you know, what we say week in and week out and what verses to study, actually John 14 and 16 came up a lot. And you know, we knew that we were going to be back studying John. You know, and so we had to just uh, you know, resist the temptation to put those in our, in our study. And so for me... It's kind of been a long time coming. Very excited to, to share on this chap, uh, these verses in this chapter and even three weeks ago when we read John 14. These two chapters in John serve as pillars. They're very important and, and foundational, I think, for our understanding of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. I, uh, I say that because um, throughout my life, there's been many times where I have talked about the Holy Spirit with people or have had certain interactions that just sort of have left me with more questions than answers. Um, I don't know if you know this, there's a lot of debate about how the Holy Spirit works and what happens when and how this all goes down and uh, what's the point of it all and you can have questions about this, that's okay. I mean, we get baptized in water, but then we're supposed to get baptized in the Spirit and how, do you feel it or do you not feel it? Is it, is it similar or, you know, some people will say you can't 
feel it or don't trust your feeling or trust your feelings or you got to and 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 we're we're at a place of confusion or uh, have you ever heard of being filled by the holy spirit are there free refills because I'm leaky. There, there's, there's, I need it. And so how does that work? You know, I got questions. And just a little bit for me that I find helpful is finding foundational texts like this to serve as a way to create a foundation, something to build upon. Or in other words, I like to talk about this because John 16 has served me as a filter through which to filter all the questions and the complicated things. I'm okay with complicated. I like the questions. I just like to have some sort of boundary for how uh, that all sort of works. Because if you can have that, then you can live inside of the complication in a way that's at least consistent. Because you're at least building on something uh, that we, know we can agree on. So what I see, what I like most about uh, this passage there is that verse in 1526 where he says, the Holy Spirit will testify about me. So if you ask me, this I think is the most foundational work of the Holy Spirit. This is my filter. Everything that we talk about or, or try and understand or you know, everything that we're learning about the Holy Spirit is to this end. The Holy Spirit will testify about me. He will reinforce. He will uh, help describe, discover, and he'll show you ways of, of the testimony of Jesus and what it means and his value and different aspects of how this will affect your life. And he'll do this as his ministry if you'll let him. A question that oftentimes I think comes up is, is so then what's my participation in this? What level do, do, I mean, do I just let the Holy Spirit do his thing and bless it? Or do I participate and what's the ratio? Um, Look at verse 27. I like how he says, the Holy Spirit will testify about me, but you also must testify. Now this, this is a work of revelation. This is a work of revealing who Jesus is. And in this revelatory work, uh, I like to reference the fact that in the first chapter of John, you, you see this contrast of light and darkness. And once you get to like the 10th verse, you see this uh, phrase that the light and the life of man, he came to his own, but they didn't recognize him. This is a point of clarification. There is a way to interact with a Jesus, a person, a figure, a history, you know, somebody who lived or someone that people believe in, but not necessarily see him for who he is. This is what the Holy Spirit's testimony and his work is doing, revealing who Jesus is. And this is something that he does for us, and this is something that he does through us. We don't just sit on the sidelines and watch him do this. It's actually never been a part of the plan. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you might remember um, the day the Holy Spirit came upon the church. Does anybody know the name of that day? We call it Pentecost. That's a great word for it. It's a, it was a feast day. And it's remembering a feast of uh, the, the, the story of the book of Exodus 
where they had the Mount Sinai experience, where they had uh, this wonder and awe of the filling of the tabernacle. That's how that whole story ended. God dwelt with them and became the empowering presence that, uh, that helped them to be his representative to the world. Now, just a cursory reading of that story will, will tell you that this was not something that happened at the end of their journey with God. This was only the beginning of their time. In the same way, as the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, this, this filling, this presence, uh, just like the tabernacle of old, we are the tabernacle uh, containing his presence. It's not the end of your journey. It's an empowering presence at the very beginning that causes you to be able to partner with the Holy Spirit in revealing who Jesus is. So if you have, you know, maybe a, a moment of clarity where you're just looking in the mirror and you're like, you know what, I, I used to would feel like I had a spiritual life and it's just been a long time since I felt anything or since it, it's just dusty, it just feels like I'm, I'm not really connected to God anymore. And what is this Holy Spirit thing supposed to be anyways? Well, something I like to point to is the last thing that Jesus said before he ascended in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and empower you, not arbitrarily, to be my witness. Consider when's the last time that you really started to dig into ways in which that you are testifying to Jesus in your life? Ways in which you're revealing to the people around you who Jesus is. As you start to dig into that, I promise you, this is what the Holy Spirit wants to talk about. This is what he wants to help us with and inspire us and empower us to do, to show the world who Jesus is. Make no mistake, St. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the gods of this age have blinded the eyes of unbelievers. They are unable to see the gospel, the glory of God that is revealed in Christ. We have work to do in, our, in the way that we live. And having the Holy Spirit uh, do that in us makes all the difference. And that's kind of my working you know, uh, structure of what I want to talk to you about today. Because in this passage that I read to you, there's at least two groups that are described, two groups of people. And both of those groups of people have similar issues. But in the end of the story, one of them is going to be in the same place and the other one is going to be completely transformed. And I think it's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. At least that's what Jesus says. It is for your betterment that I go. So let me tell you this story a little bit. As I read to you from chapter 16, you can see in verse 1, Jesus is, is speaking to his disciples on the night that he gets arrested. And he's telling them all kinds of things, preparing them for what's about to happen and the aftermath about what's about to happen. And he says this to them so that they will be strengthened, so that they will not fall away. And then in verse 2, he brings up this group of people. The verse two group, that's what I like to reference them as. The verse two group, the leadership of Jerusalem or people in Jerusalem, um, 
this group of people, he says, are going to be so frustrated that they're going to kick you out of the synagogue, okay? They're going to kick you out of church, which really is your entire community, all the people that you know and love, your support system, and they are also going to get to a point where they kill you. The disciples and this group of people do have something sort of in common. They both have an expectation in the same place. Both of them now have to deal with unmet expectations. Anybody ever have an unmet expectation? Some of our most visceral moments are actually with unmet expectations. And I know everybody's looking straight forwards right now because you don't want to look at your husband or wife. Give away, you know, exactly. I know what you're thinking. Um, They're dealing with unmet expectation. Now, I know that a lot of our energy and study goes into untangling the religious expectation that they have and how Jesus is so frustrating to that. You know, he breaks the law here. He does Sabbath stuff. He's constantly uh, being a, a heretic in their minds, but their religious expectation is also political. They really desire Jesus to be a political figure that is going to lead a rebellion. Kind of like the Maccabean rebe- revolt, that, that will, he'll, he'll lead a, a war against Rome, their oppressors. They're living in a time where they are being oppressed by this huge government, this huge machine of Rome that is causing their life to be terrible and miserable. Not to mention, this week, what I read to you in chapter 16, this week is, they're celebrating the 4th of July. Except for it's, it's called Passover in their world. And it's representing or it's celebrating their ancestors being brought out of slavery from or out of oppression from Egypt uh, and Pharaoh. And so as they're celebrating, they're looking for it. They're looking for more. Of course they are. They have a huge expectation that this guy from Galilee is going to be their new king and their new leader. Four days ago, what happened? The parade on Palm Sunday. Remember, they had the, the palm branches and they had their save us, Hosanna, save. Okay, they're, they're being very clear with their expectation about who Jesus is to them. And Jesus knows this. And he's trying to prepare his disciples for what's about to happen. He keeps telling them, I'm leaving. I'm going to the Father. I'm doing something else. And it's going to be very frustrating. Actually, they're going to view anybody who's associated with me as a threat to what they're trying to do. And they're going to, they're going to kill you. And they have this so wrapped up in their expectations about God that they're going to kill you and think that they're offering a service to God. Now, when I read verse 2, I do get a little insecure. I mean, especially at that last phrase. How do you know? How do you know that we don't do the same thing? We have an expectation and, and we will, and we're so wrapped up into it that we actually think we're doing God's work, but we're working maybe sometimes even violently against his cause and against his people. That should cause a little bit, at least a conversation in your mind and in your heart, because we don't want to be verse two. (laughs) We don't want to be verse two people. 
One of the things that come to mind is, is asking the Holy Spirit to testify to Jesus. And am I working with the testimony of Jesus? Can you have the testimony of Jesus as your ministry and seek violence against, these, against people, not least people who are following after Jesus? Well, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Can you find any of the fruit of the Spirit in this type of lifestyle? Can you have love, joy, peace, and patience and be doing the things that this verse 2 crowd is doing and be valuing the things this verse 2 crowd is valuing? Um, remember, that what, remember what Galatians 5 says when it talks to us about walking in step with the Spirit and not walking in accordance with the flesh. Now, you might not be able to demand that the Holy Spirit do things for you and inspire you, and I know that he's ready and willing to do it, but I just don't want, I want to get the expectation right. But what you can do is you can let go of the things of the flesh. You can deny the things of the flesh, that, and we have some like great lists of like what that looks like. And when you see Galatians 5, like verse 20, 21, look at some of the things on there. Anger. Outrage, uh, fits of rage, violence, bitterness, coarse talk. We can say no to this, to this, to these things in order to promote the testimony of Jesus, in order to walk in accordance with the Spirit and let the Holy Spirit testify to Jesus through our lives and partner with Him to do that. Now you might be saying, Dan, why doesn't Jesus ever directly? Talk about this to them. I mean, if he knows that they're going to get so riled up, they're, they're trying to go to war, and they're going to be so offended by him, and he's preparing them for Why doesn't he have more dialogue with them about their politics? There should be a Sermon on the Mount about politics, about Rome and all this. And I think if we ask Jesus why, I think his answer would be, I did. Now, get a little of this ratio, okay? This is something I came up with this week, and it is really bothering me. Does Jesus talk about political figures in their day? Absolutely. Um, I can think of a few. You know, you got direct references to Herod and his family, the Herodian family. Okay, we'll give them two. Herod the Great, and then some of the sons. Definitely interacts with Pontius Pilate, okay? He's a political figure. Um, we have... One, at least, mention of the most powerful person in, in their uh, government, Caesar. What's that verse? Give to Caesar what is Caesar, right? Uh, he doesn't even know. What's Show me the coin again. What, whose, whose face is on it? Um, <laughs> and so we do, I think maybe I could count on one hand the amount of times that he is directly involved in referencing uh, political figures in his day. But get this. 160 times at least, Jesus references his kingdom. If that's not a convicting ratio to you, because as I wrote that and typed that out this week, I thought, it just jumped out at me and said, what's your ratio? Embarrassingly, you know, there are times where I could say it's exact opposite. Hundreds of times referencing people in our politics and in our government and in our world and only a handful of times referencing the beauty and the vision of the kingdom of God. 
This is the Dan Mike challenge, okay? This is a hashtag moment. If you just challenge yourself to flip that ratio. Because if you're, if you're, if you're in complete you know, opposite ratio world where you are maybe referencing our government, our politics so much and then so little referencing the king and the kingdom, then maybe we are a lot more like verse two than we think. At least we're setting ourselves up to be more like verse two where we have all this tunnel vision about uh, this specific expectation that we might have, and meanwhile, completely leaving out the hundreds of times where Jesus gives us vision and gives us leadership and gives us um, his, what his kingdom looks like. Yeah, Jesus doesn't necessarily get into arguments about you know, what his kingdom looks like specifically uh, to Rome or not. I mean, like I said, he says, well, who's, whose image is on the coin? It's not really my concern. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but what my concern is is whose image is upon you. Give to God what is God's. When Jesus talks about his kingdom, he talks about it because it is what it is. He doesn't talk about it as if it's threatened by anything. It's not threatened by anything. There is no other kingdom that even comes close to his kingdom. Jesus does not have an identity crisis. He knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly where he belongs. He knows who sits on the throne. And citizens of his kingdom also know this and seek to, to emulate who he is. When he says, pick up your cross and follow me, if you want to follow me, I want that. They get to a point where like the apostle Paul, he says, I don't consider my life of any value to me. If only I might run my race. I have been crucified with Christ, crucified to the world and the world to me. What I once considered a gain, it's not really a gain for me anymore. If only I might know the power of his resurrection and become like him in his death. How do I get there? You can You absolutely can get there by asking the Holy Spirit to do his work in your life and give you a vision and a passion that's clear and vivid and and, 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 and centralizing around Jesus and who he is. And I say that because you might be thinking, I don't even want to be verse 6. How do I, I mean, look at Jesus' own disciples. They're filled with grief. They're filled with grief right now. They don't stay filled with grief. They're filled with something else in about a month's time. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And their lives completely change. Their expectations completely change. Their language completely changes. Their priorities completely change because they've been given the vision uh, and the heart of the testimony of Jesus. One of the first messages I ever preached in my life was on the chapter 5 of Acts. If you're familiar with chapter 5 of Acts, it's a pretty crazy story. These guys that Jesus is huddled up with here in this story, they actually get put into jail. They get tried. They get mocked. They are told to never, ever speak of Jesus ever again. They're experiencing verse 2. This is the verse 2 crowd. They get flogged and let go. And I'll tell you what they don't do. They don't 
huddle up and complain about how they were treated. They don't ask for the Holy Spirit to just help them to just get through this. They're not calling down judgment and punishment upon these people or demanding that they get treated in a better way. They celebrate that this happened to them because it means that they were counted worthy to suffer for something that they found so amazing. Something that they see is so beautiful. They, they are happy. They are happy to suffer for this. And I know we throw the disciples under the bus a lot, but in moments like this, they put me to shame. Every single one of these guys gets killed for this message. Some of them value it so much. They honor it so much that when they are about to be crucified, their dying request is that they be flipped upside down or put on their side or something different so that they don't take away from the one who, who was crucified for them. If you feel like right now the gospel has just become something that's really dull and something that, you know, it just doesn't really matter that much to you anymore, then ask the Holy Spirit today to fall afresh on you and to give you the testimony of Jesus and to, to help you to fall in love with it again so that we can be a people who honor this beautiful message, the most precious and valuable message in the universe. When we turn our eyes, fix our eyes upon Jesus, the things of this world become strangely dim. We got a baby dedication here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Mine as well. It was an amen. That was a baby amen. It was led by the Spirit. It's just a tongue that you don't know, okay? I'm interpreting. Jesus goes on to clarify um, a few specific things. I'm almost done. Okay, I'm wrapping it up. I know, I'm rambling. Just kidding. I planned all of this. <laughs> Jesus goes on to clarify from 8 to 11 here um, some specific things that the Holy Spirit wants to, um, wants to clarify. Notice in verse 8 what it says. He will prove the world to be wrong. What, okay, so what, what does this mean? Does it prove the world to be wrong? Well, again, filter this through his ministry, which is that he is going to testify to Jesus, testify about Jesus. So he has this testimony, and then that testimony is going to prove the world wrong. Because if you don't have the testimony, well, he can just prove the world wrong about anything. I mean, is it just sin about the reality of sin? It doesn't take a supernatural intervention for somebody to know there's sin in this world. There's stuff that we've all done to contribute to the chaos of this world. What is he proving the world wrong about? Well, look at what it says. He'll prove the world wrong about sin in regards to their unbelief in me. Okay, going back to the testimony. What, what does this mean? I think there's a lot of people in our world who are carrying around some shame, and some guilt about things that they've done, 
about things that they know that they're done. When they look in the mirror, they know who they are and they know things that they regret. We have people in our city who are living with debilitating regret, who uh, can't shake this reality that when they look in the mirror, they see somebody who has sin and who is unlovable. We have people in our family who are canceling each other out and, and, and saying you're dead to me because of certain opinions and things that you have that I don't share. And, and what ultimately this adds up to is an idea about sin that's being uh, whispered into all of our ears that that person has to pay, whether it's you or whether it's them. They have to bear their own debt of sin. And the Holy Spirit has a testimony to tell this world about Jesus. He's going to say, you are wrong. He's going to prove them wrong. You don't have to carry that debt of sin. You don't have to pay for that. If you believe in Jesus, he will take that from you. He will remove that burden from your shoulders. You don't have to walk around carrying that grief and that pain anymore. Let it go. And he will wash you. Though our sins have made us scarlet, though our transgressions have caused us to be crimson, he will wash us whiter than snow. That's the testimony of Jesus. You have sin right now that you just need to leave at his feet and believe in him that he will wash you and take that from you. Let the Holy Spirit do some work in your life and teach you that and preach that to you and give you that vision. And if that's something that's valuable to you, that that debt has been paid, then what the Holy Spirit is doing in you, he wants to do through you. And go out into the world and be somebody who forgives. He's going to prove the world wrong in regards to righteousness. And then notice what he says, because I am going away. I'm going to the Father. I'm trying to figure out what this phrase means. Okay, he uses it pretty much specifically during this story, the, the, the upper room discourse. And he talks, you could see it even in chapter 13, for he knew the hour had come for him to depart from this world and return to the Father. Um, I, this is my opinion. I think he's, he's referring to going to the cross, dying, and being resurrected and ascending. This is the shorthand for what I'm about to do. And this is significant to Jesus in regards to righteousness because in this place and in this way, as he goes to do this, he provides a righteousness for people. There's a belief, maybe even in a lot of our hearts as religious types, that we can add or subtract from the righteousness given to us from Christ. I know I'm not a prophet on the edge of town speaking here. I'm, I'm right in the center of this. I was born on a Sunday. I grew up in the church, and I know this, this tension of like, how do I add to my relationship with God? How do I live in a righteous type of, self-righteous type of way so that I can just gain a little bit of more favor from God? Or can I just manage this or do this more so that I can get God to just a shoe in to just ensure that God's going to love me a little bit? I'll tell you a, a perfect example of this. I grew up, I might be the only person, but I grew up thinking that if you prayed with someone to become a Christian, like the conversion prayer, that would make you like an elite group of Christian. Like, you would, you would for sure go to heaven. There's no chance 
that you're not going to go to heaven if you're leading people to heaven. And if you weren't on the list, all these people are in there who know you. And so then maybe they, they can put in a good word for you or something. Okay, this is how my mind is so self-preserving and it feels good because it feels like control. It feels like we have something to work with here when what we're called to is to not add to the righteousness of Christ, but to receive it. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law in us, and he is faithful and just. What we get to do is we get to receive the faithfulness of Christ. And if it's been a while since you just were able to hold your hands open and just say, I'm receiving your faithfulness and I'm trusting in you and you alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, but only to the cross I cling. Then ask the Holy Spirit to teach you and testify in your life, in your heart right now, the righteousness of Jesus. He says he's gonna prove the world to be wrong about it. The world would love for us to think that we had to add to the righteousness of Christ. I don't. It's going to prove the world wrong about judgment. What does it say there at the end of 11? Because the prince of the world stands condemned. This is my last thought today. I, I think maybe a lot of us feel like prince of the world doesn't stand condemned. There's a lot of things going on in our hearts and in our minds right now that are saying, you know what, the prince of the world is actually gaining more and more momentum. Evil is continuing to compound and arise and arise in our world. That whisper and that lie can continue on and continue on in our minds and in our hearts and and we can get this thinking. You know what? Racism, it's never going anywhere. It's actually getting worse and worse and bigger and bigger. We're never going to stop. Trafficking of women and children, it's never going to happen. Pornography, it's never going to end. It's just getting more and more popular. What are some of the big things of our world that are staring at you? These Goliaths, these giants, fortified cities that are saying to you, we're not going anywhere. It's getting worse, actually. What about in your own life? You hear anything personally that's telling you, actually, you'll always be oppressed. Actually, you'll always be a slave. Actually, you'll never be able to kick that habit or change this about you. You are going to be my prisoner forever. The Holy Spirit has a testimony of Jesus for you today, and he's going to prove you wrong. He's going to prove the world wrong about this. And he's going to say, the prince of the world stands condemned. There is a king who is a victor, and he has, uh, and he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and those big voices in this world that say that we'll ne- we're never going. Any- he's disarmed them. He's canceled your debt. He nailed it to the cross, putting it to public shame. Our king is a victor. And that victory is being more and more realized in our lives and in our world every day. And his kingdom is coming. So let's partner with the Holy Spirit who's doing this in us and through us as we go and bring this testimony um, about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment into the world. For the prince of this world stands condemned. Something I like to just put out there for you to consider today. And so let's just pray together about these things.
Almighty Father, Holy Spirit, testify. Do your ministry in our hearts. And, and if anybody is just needing a more clear vision for what you stand for, for what you're about, do your work today, the work that you've been doing for thousands of years, inspiring people to give their lives for this cause and this vision. If there's any of us here that just need to turn and repent from focusing our expectations on other things uh, and, and setting our sights so low, inspire us by turning our vision up towards you, that we can follow you into this world and tell people that they're forgiven and tell people about your faithfulness and set them free from the lies about the evil one. Even now, maybe some of us just need to pray, Holy Spirit, do your work in me. Teach me about Jesus. Challenge my priorities. Inspire me.